if you've ever felt guilty about faking being sick to get out of trouble, wait till you see Ray Ovantica. Welcome to Southpaw Deep Space Nine. We're the show where every week I take my dear friend and your friend too, Sam, uh, on a journey into Star Trek fandom as uh, we watch every episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and break down the uh, different uh, messages and political ideas, both implicit and explicit. I'm Angel Marti, your other host, and uh, today we're dealing with The Passenger. Sam, are you excited to get into this episode? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, and I think for new listeners, I think the best way to think about it is like the play-by-play and color commentary that you're used to from sports to what we like to compare to a lot, pro wrestling, because I feel like there's a certain campiness to all of Trek. It's very big. Yeah, it seems appropriate to analyze it and talk about it like we were pro wrestling commentators sometimes, you know, by the play-by-play and color. That spaceship has an engine! <laughs> that crew all has families. I guess sometimes I'm a little bit more Mike Tanay in that I'm just like, hey, I know words. I always appreciated Mike Tanay for that aspect. Hey, he's underrated. All right. So this is a season one, episode eight. This is we're in one of those moments where the Netflix and Paramount Plus uh, uh, episode order is in sync. But just for reference, we always go by the Netflix uh uh, episode order because Sam for some reason won't let me just give him my Paramount Plus login. <laughs> but now we open on the passenger. Bashir and Kira are on a runabout headed back to Deep Space Nine from just having finished a mission. I, seeing this scene, uh, had to conjecture that Bashir had exhausted all of his horniness on the ride to the mission. Because on this trip back, his switch is instead set to just being a braggart. He's just uh, talking about how good of a job he did re- reviving somebody that Kira thought was dead. I'm starting to think that uh, Bashir likes to play fuck, Mary kill with all of his crewmates, except that he wants to know who will do which of those three to him. So he clearly wants Dax to fuck him. But he wants Kira to murder him because he is trying his best to uh, irritate her, it seems. But uh, before she actually snaps into, uh, into a Slim Jim called Julian Bashir, uh, they get a distress call from a ship. Uh, because, and like what always happens in, in Star Trek, no matter what, they are the only ship close enough to respond. <laughs> so they go and they find a ship that is completely disabled, everything's on fire, and they rescue a woman played by veteran Trek and Babylon 5 actress, Caitlin Brown. Uh, there's my Mike Tanay moment, because that was instantly like when I, when I saw her, I was like, oh yeah, she played Natoff on Babylon 5. She says that there's no other life form on board, the, her other pilot's dead, but Bashir picks up on his tricorder an, a life form uh, behind the door, The woman pleads for him not to open it because apparently it's her prisoner that she was transporting who started the fire to escape. But of course, because uh, Bashir, as a doctor, is is, uh, beholden to life above all else, opens the cell and uh, they put out all the fires. And then when Bashir tries to uh, attend to the man inside the cell, that man uh, seizes upwards, grabs Julian by the throat, and then says, Make me live 
before dying. This is how all of Dick Cheney's doctor's appointments start. <laughs> That's the first thing that jumped to mind here. But uh, Sam, Sam, what are your thoughts so far as we ha- on this cold open? Well, first, it gave me a new wrinkle on Bashir is I think he might be best described as just a narcissist, right? Mm, yeah. You know, a lot of narcissists are also predators. So now I've seen the narcissistic side of him. And it's like, oh, okay, it all makes sense now. But secondly, actually, thinking about this cold open in hindsight after having completed the show, I actually appreciate it more because there's actually a lot of foreshadowing I didn't get when I first watched it. And then now hearing you give the play by play again, I'm like, oh, that makes so much more sense. They were giving you all these clues from the beginning. In hindsight, it actually is better than you first remember. So after the credits, uh, we get back to Deep Space Nine, where Dr. Horny has retreated to the Horny Cave, a.k.a. the (laughs) infirmary. And he revives the woman from the rescued ship, who is Ty Kajada from Kobliad Security, which Kobliad Security also very much sounds like a company Dick Cheney would be on the board of directors for. But apparently that's the name of their species. So Kajada's prisoner, the man who wanted Bashir to make him live, uh, is it was a man named Vantica, Rayo Vantica. And even though Bashir certifies him dead, Kajada is very dubious and wants to make sure, going so far as to ask if Bashir is sure that the body they have in the morgue is the same body that died on the ship. So uh, who is Vantica? Uh, besides the person who's able to fake his own death. Why is he able to fake his own death multiple times? It turns out he was a man of science who killed others to prolong his own life. So we cut to Quark, and we see that uh, Quark picks up Bashir's slack in this episode by being the horny one, uh, by hitting on Jadzia as she gets a drink. And so Jadzia walks off, and I find this sort of like, Quark and Odo are very much like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Deep Space Nine because they have this sort of like Beauty and the Beast style. They're really something odd about that girl kind of side banter, uh, which I like that because Odo, well, it, this is a scene where it's like they comment on Jadzia, but then they use it to comment on themselves because Odo notices that Jadzia likes to spend most of her time alone and he very much relates to that. And then Quark, uh, talks about obviously being very lust- lusty after after Jadzia. Odo saying that you must be deluding yourself uh, to think that you have a chance with her. And Quark basically says like, yeah, but it's fun to delude yourself. And it's fun to like, you know, have wants for things. And there's this, scene, there's this nice sort of uh, summing up of one of the fundamental conflicts between Odo and Quark is that, is that, uh, you know, Quark just, finds joy in just desiring things whereas odo having very little substance to his life and very few material needs doesn't understand the joy of desire two morally questionable characters how they relate to each other i think this is why the rosencrantz and guildenstern comparison is apt and so it's almost like these are the kind of funny interesting conversations they might have but also showing you how like you could have two different sides to being not evil, but let's say bad, right? You can have one who is so much law and order that they become fascist. And then you have the other side who's all about 
appeasing their appetite. And that is what they consider freedom, which also can lead to fascism, fascism, right? So it's showing you how they're very similar and may even come to the same conclusions, but from two different ways. Yes, pure id versus pure superego. And I think this is actually why a lot of fascists and chuds and white nationalists don't see themselves as Nazis or even like postings about, hey, you're being the Nazi, not me. Because you would think, why wouldn't you want to embrace being a Nazi? Because basically you are a neo-Nazi, but to them, Nazi is like this other thing, this law and order version, whereas they don't like that. They come to the same conclusion of white supremacy, but from this kind of like more chaotic way, more about primal wants and might is right and just do it in a disorderly way. Right, right. Like they are, it's like they are both basically using Chad Zia as just an object with which to sort of claim their different moral high grounds, you know, whereas like Odo sort of like is, is using sort of doing like the the frollo from hunchback of notre dame i'm on a disney kick today but like you know talking about how like well he's pure because he feels nothing about jadzia uh but then cork is like no i like i am good for just wanting wanting something that i know i can't have but now we get to um we get to sort of the b plot here which is odo uh, while talking to Quark, drops a hint that he's being extra watchful of him because there is a Duridium shipment uh, coming into the station. What is Duridium? Who cares? It sounds important. Uh, and uh, there's this wonderful line where Odo says, I'm watching you, Quark. And then and Quark immediately goes, and I'm watching you, Jadzia. <laughs> but not all is not all is great in Goo Cop Town because it turns out there's a new cop who's not the Goo Cop. There's Lieutenant George Primen from Starfleet Security who comes over to Odo as he leaves the bar and starts questioning how Odo handles uh, how handling his business because he's just basically mouthing off about this high security shipment to the de facto head of the black market on the station. Now, the thing about Primen that really uh sort of catches me very strongly and sam i don't know if you got the same thing from him but like he seems to have this like weirdly like southern fried biscuits and gravy type accent like it's not like all the way southern but there's definitely some attempt to make him seem like sort of rural american (laughs) uh but Now we have this other conflict, which is now there's apparently some other Starfleet person in charge of of security here. What's going to happen with that? So in ops, Bashir starts to brief Kira, Sisko, and Dax about the situation about Vantica, but he is reassuring them that he is is super duper dead. Uh, That, that, you know, they analyze the corpse and it's not a clone. It's not some kind of facsimile. But uh, here we learn, though, that Vantica and the Duridium are connected. So the, I thought that I thought that was cool that like they sort of tease that it might be a B plot, but it's like no, it's connected to the A plot. So it turns out that the Duridium is a chemical that can help stabilize the cellular structure of the Cobliad species, of which both Vantica and Kajada are members of, and it can prolong their lifespan. Uh, and of course, like any life-saving drug, it's a scarce resource and 
Many Kobliad have gone through, uh, we're told that they have gone through underground tactics to attain it, like driving across the border into Space Canada. A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Yeah, Vantica to me then it seems like these tech bros obsessed with living forever. And, you know, this probably came out before that really became a thing. But I think they're pulling from the same source. Like there were already people like that. And so these tech bros today are still part of that continuum of usually rich, white weirdos that goes way back to like aristocrats and kings who want to live forever. I was going to say like 93, that's like the first wave of like Silicon Valley, like, you know, the rise of like Bill Gates and, you know, Microsoft and Apple and stuff. And I I would, I would say that definitely the Silicon Valley tech bro had like become a thing by this time. And transhumanism was already a thing by this point. Yep. Yep. That's true. We already had the Borg, you know, you know, the Borg are already a part of uh, Star Trek lore at this point. So yeah, we're already, any. We're definitely able to, you're right. It's like, th- this is the kind of thing where it's like, it's not that science fiction is like, a pro- is prophetic, but it's more just like able to actually give a comment on what's going on now and then extrapolate correctly into the future. Or if it's correct, we remember it. If it's not, we forget it. So Jadzia says that Kajada and Vantica were in a way as intimately connected as any two people could be because of their deep grudge which uh, seems to make Bashir internally change his mind to wanting Jadzia to both kill and fuck him. I don't think the order matters. Uh, but Primin, our southern fried, uh, our southern fried new sheriff in town. I don't know. I, I got. I got to just figure out if if the actor actually talks like that. Now I'm like, I, I gotta like find interviews or something because I'm just like, why did I project this entire creative intent onto just <laughs> what could be a dude's voice? So he arrives on Ops to meet with Cisco for a briefing, and Kira is not happy uh, that there seems to be uh, some new threat to Odo's uh, authority. Uh, but however, Cisco is uh, immediately falls into this great, like, tough but fair police chief role and tells Primin that uh, basically uh, he does have to accept and abide by Odo's tactics and authorities, but he assigns him to basically be Odo's partner and work with him to question Kajada and figure out this whole situation with Vantica. So we do get, this is like basically lethal weapon this episode. Cause it's just like, you got to work with this guy. Goo cop, bad cop. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Oh, Sam, I'm rubbing off on you and I love it. You know, I was surprised that you hadn't already made that joke by now. You know what? Sometimes I just I need to leave space for other people to do the good work. You were so fixated on that accent. You missed the most obvious joke. So I think here's the thing that that like makes Primin seem so southern to me because he goes into Odo's office and apologizes for like, you know, uh, challenging his authority and his specific wording. He says, like, this is your bailiwick. Like, what are you from 1852? Like, I, I expected him to just like just spit a giant wad of tobacco into a spittoon across the room and make it a big ding, like a, like Yosemite, like 
Nobody says that now in 2022, Bailiwick. (laughs) I I mean, I guess I I like to think that anytime somebody says like some kind of like archaic English word in Star Trek, it just means that like every like few decades and centuries, there is just always like a uh, sort of neo hipsterism that fetishizes what is the distant past to them, but like not so distant to us. So it's just like maybe this guy is part of some weird like hipster aesthetic that just like fetishizes the 1950s for some reason. You might also be reading into the fact that Star Trek not only is based off of like the genre of sea captain stories and movies and stuff, but also Westerns, right? So you could be reading it as like a different sheriff or, you know, whatever, a a ranger showing up and messing with the local sheriff's thing, right? Yeah, true. So uh, they Primin and Odo make nice. Odo says there's no hard feelings because, you know, he is incapable of having feelings or being hard. Uh, so they go to uh, look at the security plans for the shipment. But, oh, no, somebody's hacked into Deep Space Nine's computer system and purged everything in active memory. Uh, Kajata shows up on Ops and says that Vantica did the exact same thing before on Rigel 7. So is is he alive or is there a... A uh, an accomplice, a vantacomplice uh, doing this as a copycat, a vantacopycat. I'm not proud of myself with these puns, but I still enjoy them. This is the cue that Kajada takes to insist that Vantica is absolutely alive and on the station because uh, she also knew that this was his plan before, before he supposedly died, that he was going to do something uh, to hack into the system and uh, and uh, disrupt the system when the when the uh, shipment came in, so he could get it for himself. So all of the uh, all of the crew members get to doing their tech techy things, and they find out that uh, he was able to backtrack his uh, his program was able to backtrack its way into the main computer systems through a secondary system, which Dax figures out is uh, was the temperature control. There was an unauthorized access to a temperature control panel, and so that must have been where the uh, invasive uh, computer program made its way in. But uh, so they figure out where the access came, and so then uh, Goo Cop and Space Barney Miller have a slight face-off to who gets to uh, call it in. Uh, I think they should kiss to defuse the tension, but that doesn't happen, unfortunately. Um, so they go off to uh, figure out to investigate. So Kajada reveals that Vantica was a high-security prison doctor who experimented on prisoners and raided other labs for research records, and this is all in the way to extend his own life. So there's a bit of a Joseph Mengele uh, thing here. But um, again, credit to just like the fact that the writers never make the uh, characters behave like they don't live in a Star Trek world because Cisco is incredulous for a little bit, but then knowing that weirder shit has happened, like he just accepts, he tells the crew, everyone operate under the assumption that Vantica is alive, which again, like, I, I don't know, like Sam, Sam, do you ever like watch things and just like get annoyed with how like the characters, especially if it's like a fantasy thing where like, you know, the, unbelievable or like the fantastic you know at literally according to the word fantastic stuff has happened before but the characters still are just like i don't know that sounds weird to me oh yeah yeah i did notice that i did notice that 
it didn't take much convincing. We already have, you know, a, 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 a cop made out of jello. We already have, you know, uh, a, a wormhole outside of our station. We've already had somebody murder his own clone. I don't need that much convincing that some, you know, uh, megalomaniac scientist, you know, found a way to avoid death and revive himself. So before before they go any farther, Odo uh, pulls Cisco uh, into his office and then threatens to quit because of Primen. He just is like like throwing a little little shit fit because he wants to be the sole authority. Odo, in fact, like while he's sort of uh, venting to Cisco about his displeasure with the situation, takes issue even with the fact that his title is uh, constable uh, instead of like chief or something. And uh, he says, I do not need anyone's affection. What I need is clear jurisdiction or I'm out. I like doing my, my Odo impression. Uh, and then Cisco responds by saying that he, he likes Odo because his, uh, his uh, you know, he always knows where he stands. Which is like, it feels like every like buddy cop uh, convention has like been hit by this point. There's the, I don't like this new partner. This this guy is reckless, and then there's the chief going like, "You got spunk, kid." So we again re- we revisit the fact that Deep Space Nine is under the you know joint joint jurisdiction. It is a Bajoran station, but Starfleet sort of having a you know has these supervisory functions, and so Primen is there to have like jurisdiction over Starfleet interests, but and, and Odo is always. Uh, in charge of Bajoran interests, but in any joint operations that involve both Starfleet and Bajoran interests, Odo takes charge, which placates him. And I think this is how I read Primen. He's a tool for this scene, really, because in this scene, we get it explicitly stated how Odo must consider Starfleet interests, which is not the same as Bajoran interests, right? So it makes me think about how the U.S. takes over certain countries because they want it for the shipping lanes and they'll take OpCon. That means operational authority. So Primen is coming in kind of in that role of OpCon, right? And so to a lot of countries, they don't know what they're signing up for, or maybe they didn't even get a choice, but this is what the US does. And so in this scene, Starfleet is very much acting like the US. And since Star Trek treats space like the sea anyway, and when I say Star Trek, I mean like the writers and the canon, then stations are important for space shipping lanes. So I think that's something that... Yeah, the wormhole. That is reinforced in this episode and in this scene, why shipping lanes are so important for the Empire, whether it's Starfleet or the U.S. Empire. Yeah, I started to think about like how, oh, this is kind of like how a lot of the posts you've made about, uh, you know, Singman Rhee's uh, presidency, uh, as, uh, the first presidency of, uh, of South Korea, as, as he was basically just sort of installed there by American interest and subordinated to American interests. Mm -hmm. As we uh, keep, as we go into the investigation, Dax reports to Cisco that someone tried to break into the cargo bay in Kajada's ship. And this happened after they had been docked. So somebody since after uh, Vantica supposedly died has broken into uh, the uh, cargo hold looking for something uh, she th- thinks it was probably looking for uh, this computer chip that she had decided to pick up herself, upon which is a map of the humanoid brain. And I had a little bit of a nerd, nerd, you know, sort of like, actually kind of thing with with this. It's like the only bit of laziness that I think I will 
take to issue with the writers is that they just say they present the idea of a universal humanoid brain, which in the very last episode, when we're talking about trills, it was pretty clear that like trill brains operate differently from say a human's, uh, a Terran's brain or, you know, a Klingon's brain or whatever. So to me, I was just like, ah, the science is a little sketchy there. But then I realized that if I heard somebody else making that same argument, I would get really annoyed with him and think that he was being an insufferable nerd. So shut up me. The writers have no idea about this, but humanism has been problematic since inception for the colonized people because humanism is always based around European white people, right? So there's always been this like projection of modeling what is human around the European. So I don't think they're directly making that connection, but I think you could draw that kind of parallel of like, what are you modeling the human brain off of? Maybe in this case, it's like actual earth humans. Is that the main model? And then all the other humanoids have to fit into that model. You know, you could think of it in that way in this like colonial framework. I did bring up Joseph Mengele before, but there is sort of a, a very uh, subtle sort of eugenic undertone to whatever everything that we learn about uh, Bantica's uh, science research. That's not like, it, which is good that they don't hit us over the head with a with a Nazi parallel because they do that often. You know, they they do very obvious Nazi references elsewhere in Trek. Uh, so you know, they can pump the brakes on it here for a moment. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So then we cut to Quark's where it's after hours and Quark dismisses the remaining cr- cleaning crew uh, and is now alone in his bar at, uh, I, I wrote in my notes at night, but quote unquote at night because it's always night in space. But uh, but now, you know, Quark, Quark is alone in his bar after hours, which then is a pretty universal signal in horror, horror and fantasy tropes of uh, he dead. Um, he he is accosted by an all black, uh, clad in all black, uh, whispering assailant asking if Quark had arranged the mercenaries that would help him, like they had previously discussed. So it's very obvious that uh, this is Vantica with his face uh, very very uh, uh, luckily concealed both from the audience and from Quark. Uh, Quark says he was told that Vantica was dead, and uh, Vantica said, uh, says that you know he was, but uh, not anymore. He got better. So Kajada, despite having all of this empirical proof that this is the corpse of the person who was Rayo Vantica, she's not satisfied, suspecting that they must have overlooked something. And so uh, Bashir then consults with Dax, who then proposes that perhaps there is some method of transferring the consciousness from one brain into another brain at use. But now the question is, who? Whose brain is he hiding in? Yeah, so this scene relates back to the Dax episode where we discussed personhood and copying and symbiotic relationships. So I like 
how it stays consistent in that way and it builds off of that previous episode. But just like I said in our discussion of the DAX episode, it's not life extension in the case of copying, right? When you copy, it's not really extending the life of the original thing. It means the original still dies and you copied a file of yourself somewhere else. Basically, if you really think about it, the whole quest for immortality is pointless because the original thing will never be immortal. It'll just be like you living on through memes. Yeah, I like that. That's sort of like both of the, both Dax and this episode just sort of are continuing med- meditations on like, what does it mean to be dead and be alive? Like, when does one life end and another life begin? So Jadzi and Bashir bring their theory to Cisco, Odo, and Primen, and Odo suggests that in the meantime, until they can until they can confirm that indeed Vantica has planted uh, his consciousness in somebody else's brain, uh, because Kajada seems the most likely suspect because she was the closest to Vantica, and because we already have the suspicion about her being uh, asleep the previous night uh, while the assailant attacked Quark. Uh, they have to leave Kajada out of their uh, security plans. And uh, Odo has a fun little power trip moment where he says that uh, Primen's like, uh, how do we tell her? And Odo says, uh, you know, they don't even need to tell her because she'll figure it out and uh, come to him herself. And of course, the next scene is Kajada complaining to Odo about the fact that she's now cut out of, that she's unable to access the computer files about the security plans. But we then cut to uh, Quark again after hours, where he is talking to the mercenaries that he has hired, uh, briefing them on the job they're going to do for Vantica involving the Duridium shipment. So Kajada decides to take a, take a little bit of uh, the case in her own hands, and she spies on Quark the following night, quote unquote, as he is indeed talking to the mercenaries that he's hired to do this job for Kajada. But then, in the middle of that, she gets pushed off of the balcony she's, spy- uh, she's uh, spying from and then uh, falls two stories and then has to be taken to sickbed. So everybody's pretty sure that it was Vantica uh, who pushed her. I mean, everybody's sure about, about that because she says it uh, as she's uh, barely conscious. So while, while uh, Kajada is recovering... Um, Cisco finds Dax in the morgue digging stuff from under Vantica's fingernails because uh, Dax suggests that maybe uh, because uh, there weren't any uh, hyposprays or needles found on the ship where, the, where he was being transported, uh, maybe he could have had something that could scratch some kind of specially coded cells into somebody's flesh that would carry uh, you know, the codes of his personality and his bioelectric energy and transmit that into somebody else. And sure enough, under a microscope, she finds that there's like a tiny electrical generator in the gunk under his nails. So now they at least know, they know what the mechanism was, so they know how to look for whatever the trace of Kajada is in another person, if they have any suspicions. So Kira's doing a last-minute security check uh, in the docking bay before the Duridium shows up. Odo arrives and asks where Primen is. But then Kira says she thought he was with Odo. So now, oh no, is Primen possibly Vantica? We'll find out because then we cut to Quark walking down a corridor with the mercenaries from before. Uh, and they seem to be a- about to meet their employer. 
So during the scene is when you really see who the mercenaries are and then you get to see how they're dressed. And it made me think about not just them, but a general theme in DS9 so far. Because with this specific example of the mercenaries, they look very Eastern. And I don't mean East Asia per se, but just West of Europe, what they used to call the Orient. So I think people nowadays don't realize that the Orient or even the term Oriental wasn't actually initially for people like me, like Koreans or Japanese. It was actually for people just west of what they called the Occident, west of Europe. So looking at their wardrobe, it seemed very much inspired by that. And that made me think about the Silk Road and the ports along the Silk Road, which fits into this whole shipping lanes and cargo thing that we have going on. And even the tropes of exotic danger and bandits, I think is very much like almost has that type of Indiana Jones aspect to it. I feel, I feel like a lot of American science fiction does fall into this trap of like anytime they want to design an alien race and make them seem like properly exotic, they're inevitably going to like make them seem like more Middle Eastern or yeah. more Asian. They're Orientalists. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you can see it from the very beginning, you know, in the original series, you know, the first like notoriously, you know, the first appearance of uh, the Klingons, the script of the uh, episode just says they look Asiatic. (laughs) And so, so yeah, I mean, that's definitely a fair cop. So as these, uh, (laughs) as these uh, possibly Middle Eastern looking mercenaries, uh, these, uh, these hussars are walking to the, uh, the ship, uh, the door to the ship opens and they find it's Bashir. Bashir's been the one who's been possessed by Vantigo, which means now his internal switch has three positions, creep, braggart, and murderer. So that at least adds a dimension there. But uh, Dax, uh, looking for looking for Bashir for another reason, goes to the infirmary only to find he's left his comm badge behind to avoid being tracked, which is like, the first season of Deep Space Nine really likes that, that using that device to prim in. Turns out he wasn't doing bad guy things. Uh, he actually said that uh, he was borrowing from Odo's playbook and uh, realizing Vantica's MO would be to attack computer systems by entering from another less important system. He did a diagnostic on some of the secondary backups and found a glitch that he was able to track to a waste reclamation terminal and he found another hacking device which would have similarly uh, shut down uh, the computer system again. So uh, Odo seems to like that not only did Primin do his job, but framed it in a way that stroked Odo's ego. So finally, the Deridium arrives at the station, and our heroes are going to do a Statue of Liberty play where they send a very visible security detail to one docking bay, but then send the ship to another. But as they think that that's going to, to do it, uh, Bashantika uh, shows up in a stolen runabout and uh, attacks, goes straight for the ship. And at the same time, uh, Dax shows up to Ops and reports that Julian is missing. So uh, Cisco is able to put two and two together and they all figure out that, uh, that Bantica has stolen the good, horny doctor's body. So we find out that the basic plan was that if Vantica's hacking had gone on, gone on as planned, 
they would have been able to use the stolen runabout to steal the Duridium and then warp off, you know, uh, scot-free. But because uh, Lieutenant Biscuits and Gravy was able to uh, find the hacking device, they're now able to lock a tractor beam onto Vantica's ship before they can escape. So Vantica, now in a desperate play here, uh, basically holds his own body hostage. And he says that, uh, okay, if I take this ship to warp while you still have me caught in this tractor beam, the ship's going to blow up and kill your doctor and me along with it. Are you willing to take that chance? Cisco is able to sort of vamp for time as Jadzia, having realized how the whole tech-tech uh, mechanism of, uh, of uh, Vantica's brain hacking works, she's able to modulate the perambulators or something to do whatever. She's basically able to send like an electrical pulse uh, through the tractor beam that can shut down Vantica's control of Bashir. And so when they finally do it, though, uh, Bashir, I mean, Alexander Siddig, God bless him, when he gets zapped uh, by this brain wave thing, he does this like th- body thrashing thing that just, it is delightfully silly. <laughs> well, the whole like acting of the actor who plays Bashir as this possessed person was very silly and kind of funny. He delivers everything like every word is dripping with evil. Like it almost sounds like, (laughs) I mean, if the intention was to make him sound like somebody else is trying to talk to him through his brain, I think it worked, but otherwise it just kind of sounds like your, your like, best friend's elementary school kid playing the villain in an in like a school play so it is uh actually actually i did find a little bit of a of a of a funny little behind the scenes fact about that so uh this is from memory alpha so all of alexander siddick's original onset dialogue as vantica in the episode was dubbed in post-production rick berman (laughs) rick berman commented quote we had a very odd experience on the show. Siddig made a choice of a voice that didn't work for us. It was too Bella Lugosi-like, and we replaced <laughs> his entire part with him again, but we had him do it in a different way. We didn't really know if it would work or not, but it was fun. Now I want to hear those scenes with the original audio recorded on camera, because that would have been amazing. It's like, are you willing to blow up the ship, Captain? Well, in general, I feel like the acting on DS9 is much more over the top and I feel like overacting than the next generation, which kind of adds its own kind of fun to it and camp to it. It very much is more campy than uh, the next generation because of that. Um, so, I mean, uh, there's not much plot after this. They're able to zap uh, uh, Vantica out of Bashir's brain and they put it into something that looks like a decorative ashtray. and then, uh... <laughs> Spent zero money on it. Yeah. It's kind of cute. It like looks like a coaster or something, and then uh, Kajada just uh, destroys it. The end. <laughs> Good. So, all right, great. No, no business left unresolved. Well, I just want to say uh, that I'm so excited for next week's episode because uh, the next one is going to be Move Along Home, which is a you know for any of you listening who have seen the episode before, you know it's just a delightful, silly little piece of of Trek. I mean, some people say that it's a bad episode. I disagree. <laughs> with, I just, dis- 
Some people say that it's like when they talk about like skippable episodes of like season one, sometimes people will include this. I disagree with that. I think it's still a good episode, but it is all, but it's undisputably very silly. So we're going to have uh, a <laughs> lot of fun with that. A silly DS9 episode? I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, we have a lot of fun here on Deep Space Nine. So if guys, if you like Southpaw and you like Southpaw Deep Space Nine, uh, please support all of our work by uh, looking us up on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash southpawpod. Kick in as little as $4 and you can, uh, every month, you can become a member of our Discord and you can get all different little bonus posts and pieces of content. And also, of course, you know, you'll support all the other great sub-series in the Southpaw Network like Fight Study, Pride Never Die, Working Stiff Radio. Again, that's uh, patreon.com slash Southpaw Pod. Uh, in the meantime, until next week. Da-na-na-na!